Amen. Northlake, this year our elders have uh, perceived that what would pleasure God would be that we would engage our community and uh, this is not what we had in mind, but it is what God has given to us and so um, this is a chance to engage, to overcome evil with good and to love. And uh, I know that downtown Raleigh right now, uh, there's a volunteer cleanup going on. Bring a mask, a broom, and a trash bag. And some of you may want to pause this broadcast and go join that and be praying for the suffering and the loss that's been going on, even in, in our city in, in Raleigh. Um, there'll be prayer gatherings in the future, I'm sure. Join them. Lead them. Prayer walk our city. Prayer walk where the troubles are. Um, This is our opportunity to engage and to overcome evil with good. I hope you'll be joining in prayer. Let the news be a prompt to pray. Not not to complain. Not to give in to fear. But to pray these days. But let's turn our thoughts now to he who is our great hope, to Jesus. We're going to go back to the Gospel of Mark. Put your thumb in your Bible Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5, that's where we'll be. Um, let me start this way. Author um, S.I. McMillan tells a story of a young woman who wanted to go to college. But her heart sank when she read the question on the application blank that asked, are you a leader? And being both honest and conscientious, she wrote no and returned the application expecting the worst. But to her surprise, she received this letter from the college, dear applicant, A study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. Um, To be a follower. What does that even mean? That's how we self-identify as Christians often, right? We're a follower of Christ. What do we mean by that? What should we mean by that? At this point, I think it would be helpful to reflect on that marvelous philosophical exchange between Vizzini and Inigo Montoya. Watch this. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. That would be inconceivable. As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. Inconceivable! Inconceivable. Inconceivable! You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. What do we mean by that? I wonder if Jesus would say those same words to us when we say we are a follower of Christ. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Um, um, Today we're going to drop in on two stories in Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5 that help us know what that word follower truly should mean to us. And the first story is found in the back end of Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. And I'd like to introduce you to the wonderful work that the Lumo Project has done with their video presentations of the Gospels. Here's the one from our first story today in Mark chapter 4. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. 
There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's walk through that together. Verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. This story starts with this simple invitation from Jesus, let's go across to the other side. Essentially, he is saying what he's already been saying in the Gospel of Mark on more than one occasion, follow me. Follow me. Get into the boat and let's go to the other side of the sea. And this, in a sense, is a picture of discipleship. Getting into the boat with Jesus and going wherever he leads. And then, of course, we assume that for following Jesus, that leads to smooth sailing on glassy seas, right? Life following Jesus, we think, is like it's the fulfillment of that old Irish blessing. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. The rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Except for that last part, not exactly. Look what happens next in our story. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Don't miss that Jesus has led his disciples into a great storm. One that, as we're about to see, that caused even the experienced sailors among them to fear for their lives. It was a great storm. That language could be used and was used to describe hurricanes. And Jesus led his friends right into it. I imagine he could have foreseen the weather, Put it on pause. I imagine he could have prohibited the storm from ever happening on that sea. That is not how Jesus works. Commentary from long ago, Matthew Henry said it this way. He said that Jesus could have prevented this storm and have ordered them a pleasant passage. But it is quite otherwise. For Christ would show that they who are passing with him over the ocean of this world to the other side must expect storms by the way so here are 
friends are in the midst of the storm of a lifetime, maybe the storm that ends their lifetime. Where is Jesus in all of this? Well, verse 38, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So in the midst of this terrible storm that Jesus led them into, Jesus is fast asleep on a pillow. And this curious detail that Mark reports about Jesus being asleep um, reveals two really significant things about who Jesus is. First of all, he's human. He's evidently exhausted here at day's end, so exhausted that he sleeps through a great storm on a small boat. Jesus is human, just like you and me. He gets exhausted. The second thing we see is that he is not at all troubled by the things that deeply trouble you and me. Things that are wildly out of our control. Jesus asleep on a pillow amidst a great storm is a picture of fearless trust in his Father. It's the embodiment of what the psalmist wrote way back in Psalm 4. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now it's easy to pick on the disciples here for their lack of faith, but give them some credit. They do seem to think <clears throat> that Jesus can be of some help. Otherwise, why would they wake him up? So give the disciples a little bit of credit here and give Jesus lots of credit here. He honors their faithless request. He may not admire it, but he honors it. In verse 39, he awoke, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There's a great calm. Jesus simply speaks to the wind and the sea, and they obey him. What had been a great storm is now a great calm. It goes from hurricane force winds to smooth as glass instantaneously just by his word. There's no incantation. There's no hocus pocus. Jesus just speaks. Seriously, Mark doesn't even say that he shouted, contrary to the video. He simply speaks these words, peace, be still, and it is so. Creation does the bidding of her creator. This is godlike work. Psalm 65 says it plainly, God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Jesus doesn't call on God to do this work. He simply does the work of God himself. And it's, it's of interest that the language Jesus uses here to speak to the wind and the waves is language that prior to this has been associated in Mark with exorcism, with rebuking evil spirits. Here he bukes, rebukes in the same language the wind and the waves. So could it be that this storm is more than a coincidence? 
Could it be that it is part of the strategy of unseen opposition to Jesus' ministry? And that makes sense when we see in a few minutes where Jesus is headed to a place and a people that are in desperate need of his gospel. And we'll see that in the second story. But now, having spoken to the storm, he turns to speak to his terrified disciples. This is what he says. He says to them, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You know, ouch, that's, that had to sting. Matthew softens it a little bit when he says that Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. Still, though, Jesus is clearly not happy with his disciples' lack of faith. He rebukes them for their fearful lack of trust, specifically in his care. That he is both great and good for them. You know, I've shared before that as a child, probably the first prayer that I learned how to pray was a simple one. We said at mealtime around our dinner table, uh, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And that those simple pillars about who God is, both are true. God is both great and he is good. Yet the disciples have but little faith in his greatness and even less in his goodness towards them. And this is what Jesus rebukes. They are doubting his care for them. Verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Since they're filled, filled, it says, with a great fear. Mark says they are even more afraid of Jesus at this point than they were of the storm when it was raging. But they are asking the right question, right? Who then is this? And if you're listening in this morning and you would not self-describe as a follower of Jesus, If he is not your Lord who leads you, then this question is the most important question for you. Who then is this? If he is God, come among us as both his words and his actions claim, then the right response is to get in the boat and follow him wherever he leads. The question presses in on those of us who say we are followers of Jesus already as well. Who is this then? If we say that he is nothing less than God with skin on, then we must follow him not only into smooth sailing, but even if he leads us into great storms. Professor David Garland puts it this way. He says, the miracle of the storm does not teach us how to endure adversity patiently because Jesus immediately eliminates the problem. The emphasis in this story is on who Jesus is, not on how he rescues fretful disciples from danger whenever they cry out to him. One cannot expect a miraculous intervention that will calm all the storms in life. Storms are a part of life from which no one escapes. There are no stormless seas, and all sailors must learn to expect the unexpected. Chaos hits our lives, and it can all happen so quickly. One moment all is well, then in a flash, All is hell. And we're seeing that play out in our great cities. Through all the storms, we will follow him. Jesus is making powerful statements to his followers here. Don't miss them. First, he is powerful and he is caring. 
He is great and he is good. His care for you is beyond question. He's making a strong statement to help us assuage our doubts. Jesus cares. In the midst of storms, Jesus cares. And he sometimes leads his followers into battle that is dangerous. C.S. Lewis captured it famously with his Christ figure, the lion Aslan, in his Narnia books this way. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So this morning, will you resolve to get in the boat and follow King Jesus, even if he leads you into great storms? Now let's go to our second story. The second story is the reason Jesus crossed the lake with his disciples and braved that storm. Let's watch the Lumo Project again. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. But Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Okay, look with me at verse one of chapter five. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Just a quick note. The other side of the sea is Gentile country, not part of Israel. And one writer described it this way in terms of the significance of what Jesus is doing here in his journey. Crossing the lake to an area where swine are kept is more than a sportive outing. Jesus embarks on a daring invasion to claim alien turf under enemy occupation and reveals that there is no place in the world into which God's reign does not intend to extend itself. The confrontation that ensues reveals that every square inch at sea and on the land will be contested by Satan. And and I would hasten to add, and that contest will be won by Jesus, right? Now in the verses that follow, we're about to meet the reason that Jesus crossed the lake. Verse two, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So picture this from the disciples' vantage point. They had just weathered likely the worst storm of their life and they're thrilled to hit dry land at last. But immediately, as soon as they did, as soon as they step out of the boat, um, they meet this guy. And, And to make matters worse, Matthew tells us in his account, there are two of them, though Mark only tells with a focus on the one. And no sooner they step on a dry land, this guy, cut and bleeding, dragging change, the chains, Luke tells us he was naked. They left that part out of the video, mercifully. Um, he comes running out of the tombs, straight at them. He's shouting at the top of his voice. We read it down in verse six. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. No one can bind this man, not with chains or shackles. So Jesus is going to try a different tactic. He is going to set this man free. From the get-go in this encounter, the demons are in submission to Jesus. You notice that? They bow before him. And as we're about to see, they obey his every command. But here we see that the demons know what the disciples cannot seem to sort out. They know the answer to that question. Who then is this? It is Jesus, they say, the son of the most high God. And the demons here may be using both Jesus' name and the name of God in an attempt to gain some kind of leverage over him. One scholar explains it. It was assumed back in this day that one had power over others when one knew their name. And when they pronounce Jesus' name, they're basically saying, we've got your number. They also abjured Jesus by the name of God not to torment them. They invoke the name of God 
to keep the Son of God off their back to protect themselves. And now, believe it or not, things are about to get even crazier. Verse eight, for Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. (laughs) One commentator makes this keen observation The man is under the control of a demonic force that appears to use him as a personal gymnasium. When one compares the accounts of Jesus' exorcisms to the story of exorcisms from the contemporary Greco-Roman world, one thing stands out. Jesus does not resort to any special techniques employed by other exorcists to purge the demons, such as odd recipes, secret prayers, bizarre formula, knowledge of the names of the demons, or their thwarting angel. The power of his person alone drives the demons out, Professor Garland writes. It's just like Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So it's it's no contest here. Jesus prevails, not over just one demon, but over thousands of demons, perhaps. The name the the demons cite, legion, um, in Roman military terms, refers to as many as 6,000 soldiers. And Jesus' little word fells them all. So, what about the pigs? Some of you are concerned about the pigs So it's helpful to just take a moment and kind of do a little pigology, if we could. Um, In our day, mention of pigs brings to mind a pet like Babe or or Piglet or or Miss Piggy, right? Um, This was not the case in the mind of first century Jews. Pigs were unclean animals And it's been suggested that their demise would be in the mind of an Israelite of that day, something like our reaction to the demise of thousands of disease-carrying rats or a den of venomous snakes. To a Jew, it's been suggested by one scholar that this scene acts like a kind of play, kind of a word play. Um, Unclean animals and unclean spirits are both done away with And an unclean man is made clean. Well, down in verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So a man's life is miraculously restored. As the sea was calmed, so now is this man calmed. And the people are begging Jesus 
not to stay and heal their sick and teach them about the God behind all this. But they're begging him to leave. Why? Well, in a word, Mark says it was fear. But he doesn't say what they were afraid of. One one answer is perhaps they were afraid of the cost of it all. 2,000 pigs, the loss of 2,000 pigs is a major economic loss, devastating to the local economy, no doubt. It seems that pigs, or maybe we could say pork bellies, may have mattered more to them than the life of this man. Concern for the bottom line may outweigh concern for those caught in the grips of suffering. Calvin Stowe, long ago, was a professor of biblical studies. He lived in the shadow of his more internationally famous wife, Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of the poignant denunciation of slavery, Uncle Tom's Cabin. When she toured England, he preached before a large crowd gathered to observe Anti-Slavery Day. He told the listeners, in no uncertain terms, that they were hypocrites, They were proud that slavery had been long since disappeared in England, but 80% of the cotton picked by slaves in the southern states of the U.S. was bought by England. He said slavery would die in America if England would boycott its cotton and went on to ask, are you willing to sacrifice one penny of your profits to do away with slavery? And the crowd booed. Jesus has encountered this demoniac. He's encountered the demons. He's encountered these townspeople. And now he encounters the man made new who is clothed and in his right mind. Verse 18, as he's getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. What a beautiful expression. He might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Again here, notice Jesus is presenting himself in the place of the Lord, of God. Jesus is the Lord that this man is to tell of the mercy that's been done to him. It's fascinating here. Jesus grants the demon's plea to enter the pigs. And he grants the people's plea to leave them alone. But this man's plea to accompany Jesus is the only plea that Jesus refuses in this passage. It seems he has another mission for him. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so it's to the Decapolis, this region on the other side where Jesus sends him, a place where demons plead to stay and people plead for Jesus to leave. It's a very, very dark place spiritually. And now, I think it's the first missionary sent out in the Gospel of Mark is this formerly demon-possessed man sent to the unreached peoples in the Decapolis, his home. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this morning, 
I believe Jesus is saying these exact same words to you and to me. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you because he has delivered us from evil's grip too. The Apostle Paul would later write, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. We'll get in the boat with Jesus. We'll go wherever he leads, wherever he sends us even through great storms, so that others can hear of the mercy that the Lord has had on us. Let's go back to a question we've been asking this year. Who's your one? Who's the one person that you love so much that you are willing to go into the storm of spiritual resistance and warfare to tell them of God's mercy? Who's your one? Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let's pray. Lord, help us not overlook perhaps our less dramatic mercy that you've given to us. In subtle ways, you have rescued those of us who believe and claim to follow you from the domain of darkness, the domain of Satan, and brought us into your own kingdom. What a great mercy, wholly undeserved. And Lord, now commission us by your spirit to go back to our homes and to our neighborhoods, maybe to new homes and new neighborhoods in difficult places, in places of unrest or places that are like the Decapolis where where people have never heard of you. And help us share with gladness the mercy that the Lord has shared with us. Jesus, have this mercy upon us, we pray in your great name. Amen.